This is an ABC podcast. Lock the doors. We would expect to see some rather concerning numbers for a while. I will continue to stand up for these regions that I know and love. We know how important it is for the parliament to meet. Isolation, testing. Being bored is much better than being in intensive care. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RN Drive and Afternoon Briefing. And I'm Fran Kelly from RM Breakfast, and we're going to be joined soon in this party room, in this party house we're in today by Amy Ramikas, who's a political reporter with Guardian Australia, talking about this week's uh, March for Justice rallies, which happened in Canberra, in the national capital where I am, and all around the country, and in particular looking at the government's response to those calls from those thousands and thousands of Australian women this week. That's right. And Fran, I'm still in Melbourne, but you're actually at Parliament House What's it been like this week? I have to say, PK, you know, I spent a lot of time in my career in Parliament House. It's particularly intense this week. I think that's the best word for it. It's a, it's a very busy place because Parliament's basically back to full swing and these are the final sitting weeks before the budget. So there's lobbyists and delegations everywhere. They haven't been able to get to their elected representatives. Now they can. So that's interesting and intense in itself. But I think the word I would use to describe the government is the government's on edge. I mean, it mishandled its response to the March for Justice rallies. I think it wasn't prepared for the size of the engagement with those rallies, the turnout at those rallies and the backlash for its initial apparent indifference to them. I spoke to quite a few women out the front of Parliament House, and they were absolutely outraged that the Prime Minister wasn't going to come down to hear them, that in particular the Foreign Minister and the Minister for Women, Maurice Payne, wasn't going to come out and meet them. They were horrified at that. But there's something else going on here too, and that's for the women in this place, the politicians, the journalists, the other staffers, a lot of women finding these debates and these allegations really personally distressing. People have experienced serious bullying themselves or violence themselves or violence against women close to them. You know, for women here in this building and in all places, I think, around the country, this has been a tough week and a tough couple of weeks, PK. Um, mm. it, it was plain to see, particularly earlier on in this week, that this issue of harassment and assault for women is very front of mind for pretty much every woman right now. And, and it's, it's obvious to see. I've noticed that too, Fran. Um, you know, on, on a personal level, I've found it hard. And I just want to thank the many people who have uh, made contact with me, who are listeners to Radio National Drive. I'm sure you've had the same experience saying, I imagine it's very difficult as a woman to cover these issues. And I think that shows a level of emotional intelligence that only our listeners could deliver. So mm. thank you for noticing. Yes, it has. And it has for many reasons, because Violence against women is something that we all have had to either personally, as you say, or, or, you know, through our lives endure. So it is a very, very, very deep issue for us. And I think the government's mismanagement of this is because of that. Across the country, beyond Canberra or beyond Parliament House, this issue resonates so deeply. An anonymous political source, for instance, told Phil Curry from the Australian Financial Review, I thought this was really telling, uh, that initially the coalition thought this was an issue that mostly impacted tertiary-educated women, right? And what does that mean? I, I, You know, that to me, the subtext of that is educated, middle-class women who are already feminists. Yeah. You know, that they it already sort of means that. lefty ABC listeners. Yeah. That's really who they're talking about, doesn't uh, but, it? But That's also feminists, right? Feminists, yeah. you know, women mm. who are aware and are already basically converts to the cause of yeah. of the disparity of wanting women to be, you know, they're already there, but that it's had cut through in the suburbs. Now, what, is the, what does the word suburbs mean? It's such a, 
It's it's such a straw man kind of like notion. But what it really means for them, if we're going to cut through the language here, is that they've been shocked that ordinary women, women who don't, you know, aren't capital F feminists, you know, haven't, like I have, organised Reclaim the Night rallies, Mm. you know, just like women who are just getting on with their lives, trying to feed their kids and just are actually really upset about this. Now, I reckon the fact that they didn't see that shows how disconnected they are from women in this country. I'm not surprised that it's had cut through at all. Yeah, I think that's right because really really what you're talking about is that they didn't see this as an issue for their base. But, of course, half their base is women and most women in this country have either suffered harassment or bullying or sexual assault or had someone very close to them suffer some serious, you know, sexual assault issue or sexual harassment issue that has probably scarred them and had an impact on all those around them. And they're not recognising this because so many of them are men. And so many of them are not attuned to it. And that's part of the problem. Now, you know, this week, and we'll talk about this some more probably, I'm sure, with, with Amy, there's been a, a kind of equivalence argument run uh, as the coalition has pointed finger at Labor and Labor, former Labor staffers and current staffers have had some of their, um, you know, private anonymous allegations from a Facebook page come to, to light. So, you know, it's a problem on Labor's side too. Well, surprise, surprise, it's a problem for women everywhere, not just in this building, not just in political parties. But one thing I think is not equivalent is that on the Labor side of politics, there are more women. They are nearly at half 50-50 representation in the parliament. It doesn't mean that some of the men on their side aren't behaving poorly towards women, aren't guilty of some of these kind of allegations. But it does mean I think their antenna and their understanding is better. And I think that's one of the things we're seeing here is the government you know, didn't get this right because they simply do not have enough female MPs in their ranks. That's part of it, I think. Oh, it's absolutely part of it. Look, as we started speaking about these rallies happening across the country, for me, that Canberra rally was um, so emotional. In Canberra, that the former Liberal staffer, Brittany Higgins, made that surprise address. She was not expected to attend or speak at the rally, but there were loud cheers when she took to the stage and spoke in front of the House, where... Let's be clear here. She is standing in front of the house where she alleges she was raped just two years ago. This is the message she had for women who are watching and listening. Speak up, share your truth and know that you have a generation of women ready, willing and able to support you. Take ownership of your story and free yourself from the stigma of shame. Together, we can bring about real, meaningful reform to the workplace culture inside Parliament House and hopefully every workplace to ensure the next generation of women can benefit from a safer and more equitable Australia. Just incredible words from Brittany Higgins. And as I say, I have never seen anything like that. Yeah, it was an extraordinary response on for a start. I mean, the crowd wasn't expecting Brittany Higgins to be there and she was sort of unveiled like she was the star at the show, which she was, of course, because she kicked off the show in a sense, not to trivialise it in any way. But it was, you know, we're recording this on a Thursday, I think it's 29 days since her allegation was first aired. And um, that's what's really got this ball rolling. She was at times 
visibly moved by the the support from the crowd, the cheers she got from the crowd. Um, she's suffered a, a lot of negative feedback as well as positive um, reinforcement since she first came forward with these allegations. But to be cheered and welcomed by a crowd of so many thousands, six or seven thousand people, I think did her good. But you could also see she was shaken too, PK, when she was giving that speech and looking back towards Parliament House, as you say, towards the very building where she's alleged that she was raped by a colleague was very powerful to mm. see. And when she talked there in that grab, you know, like we can work together to change things. One of the, the things she, she spoke of there was how she was absolutely shocked and appalled when she learnt that former colleagues of hers in the, in the party and the government that she worked for, that she was so loyal to, so committed to working for, were then, after she made these allegations, backgrounding against her, her friends and her partner. The crowd was shocked to hear that. And I think the government has been pushed on this by Labor since Brittany Higgins said that publicly. And I think Labor will continue to push this because the the Prime Minister, I think, is going to have to give some response to that. Is he taking that comment from her seriously? Is he investigating that in his office? What is being done to get to the truth of that ugly allegation? Ugly understatement. Just actually at the centre of what the problem is, if it's true. Which is it's all political, right? Yep. It's been politicised. And, and again, speaking to the women down there, that was one thing I heard a lot, that the government is treating this like a political management problem. They're not looking at us. They're not looking after us. The women in that crowd are looking for some action from the government, not just for some spin and some distraction and for some you know sweet words, which actually the tone's been pretty wrong anyway most times from the government mostly this week, particularly the Prime Minister, but they can see political management for what it is and they're not happy. That's right, Fran. Look, there are other issues going on in this country, but you've, you've got to call it for what it is. This issue has dominated. It's taken all of the energy and oxygen, and I think rightly so. Let's bring in our guest. Let's do it. Amy Ramikus is the political correspondent for Guardian Australia and friend of the podcast. Welcome to the party room. Hello. Oh, Amy, it's so good to have you at the party. It's great to be here. Uh, Amy, we've just been talking about the, the March for Justice rallies in this place and around the country and how really, in my view, the government got it, well, in our view, the government got it wrong around the rally. The Prime Minister, he says, well, he doesn't make it a practice of going to rallies. Perhaps people would agree with that, understand that, accept that. But what was the Minister for Women, Maurice Payne, thinking? How big a misstep was that? And do you think the government got out of this by, in the end, there was a small phalanx of coalition women who went down to that rally? I don't know why Maurice Payne didn't attend that rally. And I do think that that was a miscalculation and a misstep, not just on the political front, but just telling people that this is above politics, that this is not partisan, that this is something that people actually care about and actually want to see fixed. And the fact that we saw it from the beginning stages seen through such those partisan lenses by the government, I think did the marches a real disservice and did the issue a real disservice. And I think we saw the government try to correct that uh, on the Sunday when Scott Morrison made the offer for a to meet a delegation. Uh, Maurice Payne had previously said that she would accept the submissions and the petition through email and by post, which uh -uh. I thought was 
just extraordinary. Uh, and then she also said that she would meet with them and she would accept those petitions that way. And we did see coalition backbenchers decide to attend the march. At the last minute, I think it's fair to say. At the very last minute. And, uh, and also making it clear that they were very disappointed that no one wanted to meet with the Prime Minister, which again, I think was up to the marchers to decide. So I think there has been a huge miscalculation by the government here. And we saw that when Scott Morrison did his uh, question time address where he spoke about, you know, how great this liberal democracy is that we live in and how, you know, protesters should essentially be grateful that they weren't being shot at. I think that was the moment where people who had been giving the government the benefit of the doubt went, okay, they really don't get this. And we've seen a bit of a scrambling in the last couple of days to try and fix that. Yeah, I think that's right, Amy. And the PM said, you know, he was misunderstood and taken out of context. He was talking about, for instance, in Myanmar, what we're seeing, that there is in our region, uh, genuinely, some people just do not have the same democratic rights as us. And that may be true. And we, you know, you, us three, I'm very certain, think that's outrageous that people live in those circumstances. But we do not, Australian women do not have to be thankful that they were not, you know, shot at or, or that there's not that kind of culture here. There's no reason for Australian women to have to thank anyone or be thankful or feel like the, the liberal democracy we live in is some kind of gift to us. No, we've worked for it and we fight for it. And, and also, I mean, the women weren't asking for permission to rally. Mm -mm. They were asking for the government to respond to their concerns. And what the Prime Minister responded to was, well, it's great, you know, you're allowed to rally, that's great. But he didn't take the next step and people are still waiting, I think, for the government to take the next step and respond to the concerns in the petitions, in those signs from those women. Mm. And I think instead of taking that next step, what we're seeing is the further politicisation of this issue. Uh, we've seen that in question time uh, in the last couple of days as well. Uh, and no one is saying that there are not problems on all sides of politics. That has never been in doubt. No one is saying that there are not major issues that need to be addressed within the Labor Party as well. And we've known that for years. It, it's not. This is not a new problem. And I think that's where the frustration comes from. This is not new. This didn't just pop up a month ago when Brittany Higgins made her allegations. This is something that people, predominantly women, have lived with for decades and decades Not and decades. Not just in this place, no. but all over, in every park, in every street, in every shop, in every house, mm. you know, every not bedroom. every house, but of course, but you know, this happens everywhere. Exactly. And that we've seen the government, the leaders of this country struggle to recognise that this is a very real life issue for people, I think has probably just shown people just how much of a vacuum there is when it comes to to the lack of leadership on some of these issues in this country. And I've also going to just take a note that I've also been quite frustrated in how it has been the women who have been expected to respond on this. So all of the dixes, so the questions that the government asks itself for the backbenchers, all of the dixes on this issue have been mostly directed to Susan Lee to explain. Why can't the Prime Minister tell us what is happening? for women? Why can't somebody else in the government stand up and say, this is what we're doing? Why do we need Tanya Plibersek or Penny Wong to answer for the failures in the Labor Party? This is not an issue that women have to step up and be extra extraordinary in explaining. This is a problem for the men. It's the blokes who have got to step up. And by and large, they haven't. Yeah, I think that was beautifully put. Let's talk about sort of the way that, that some of these issues have been weaponized, because I think they have. 
from many people, and let's talk about this example. This week we we heard outgoing Liberal backbencher Nicole Flint borrow a well-known phrase from former Prime Minister Julia Gillard when she said this. Well, I say to the Leader of the Opposition, I will not be lectured by you. I will not be lectured by your side of politics about the treatment of women in this place. I asked the Leader of the Opposition, where was he and where was his predecessor and where were the senior Labor women? when Get Up Labor and the union supporters chased, harassed and screamed at me. Everywhere I went in the lead up to the 2019 election. Uh, Now, obviously, the safety of women and the way that gendered issues and sexism is weaponised and used in election campaigns is absolutely, you know, the left is is responsible, the right, I mean, it is seriously sexism. It's the one thing that you can find everywhere. Like, I haven't seen anywhere where it doesn't exist, so it's happening everywhere. But again, it's that point you were making, Amy, that Nicole Flint, you know, her first point was like, Where were the Labor women? Now, yeah, I think there are issues for why wasn't Labor more vocal about denouncing the sexist treatment of any woman, whether it's their own side or not, during 2019 and and earlier. But that thing about responsibility having always to come from women was the bit that really jarred with me. Mm, And and, and again, it's not a new issue either. It's whenever there is something that happens with women, we always turn to the women to try and speak up and to fix it. When overwhelmingly, it's not the women who are causing the problem. And I think we really need to switch this up. I mean, during the week, uh, Holly Hughes, uh, one of the coalition senators, tweeted something about how uh, disappointed she was that the delegation had not accepted the offer to meet with the prime minister. And that proved it was partisan for her. And so she wouldn't be going. And I took that tweet and sort of said, you know, politician accuses people of politics because they're not voting for her. And she tweeted back at me saying that so much for the sisterhood. Now, the sisterhood doesn't mean that you all have to agree and that you all have to just come to a consensus where you're not allowed to criticise women for doing, you know, for not doing something or saying something or whatever. That is not the sisterhood. We're not a monolith. But we also kind of need to look at the fact that why we keep turning to women to fix these problems. Like, why is it the sisterhood that needs to fix a problem that the sisterhood is experiencing? It just doesn't make sense to me. Well, that's true. And also in this case, um, Nicole Flint did take aim at the Labor sisterhood, particularly Tanya Plibersek and Penny Wong, both of whom were, I think, personally outraged that they'd mm. been singled out in this way. Uh, Penny Wong came out the next day and uh, agreed that the treatment handed out to Nicole Flint at the last election, as Tanya Plibersek has on the public record is saying was, you know, outrageous, should never happen and should not be countenanced. They reached out. Here's Penny Wong. I make this offer to Nicole Flint. If she genuinely wants to sit down with Tanya and I to talk about how we can work together to make this a better place for women, a safer place for women, and how we can make workplaces across Australia safer for women, I'd be very happy to do so. Now I understand that Nicole Flint has accepted that and they are going to have a meeting and that's, and that's good. And clearly the treatment that Nicole Flint has experienced, which is basically driving her out of politics, is absolutely unacceptable. But this notion that it's the opposition politicians who should have called it out at the time. I mean, were her members calling it out at the time? And you don't have to go that far back to remember the treatment that was handed out to former Prime Minister Julia Gillard, some of which was absolutely horrendous. Mm. And I don't remember the other side calling that out. Now, that's not to say this is good behaviour from either side. We should all be acknowledging it, recognising it and condemning it. But politics always gets in the way. Mm, it, It does. And I mean, politicians 
get so much abuse, like so much. And, you know, journalists do too, but you only have to open up any politician's social media to see the abuse that's levelled towards them. When it's a female politician, you see that extra level of viciousness when it's of just the absolute sexism. And it comes from the left and the right. Mm. It's just, it's absolutely vile, just the hatred and the vitriol that is sent to people because of their gender. It's absolutely not on. It is also not on for the women to have to continually stand up and say, I am experiencing this abuse. There should be people who stand up for Nicole Flint and say, this needs to stop. There should be people who stand up and say, this should never have happened and we're going to fix it. And it shouldn't always have to be the women who are driving this conversation. Just before we leave this issue, because it's it has dominated Parliament this week, and you know we'll talk about the Attorney General, I think, in a moment and the position he's in and conflict of interest. But the notion of what should the government have been doing? So it responded by not sending the ministers out to the rally. The Prime Minister, I think, you know, mangled his response and has been criticised for it. Labor will keep pushing for an inquiry into Porter and, and elements of that. But what can the government do now? What should it do at the end of a week like this to prove that it means what it says when it says this kind of, you know, sexual assault and sexual harassment of women needs to stop. There's been a delegation here in the building this week of women's legal services asking for more funding for women's legal services, for law reform in terms of establishing a sexual violence court within our court system. There's been the um, the findings of the parliamentary inquiry into violence against women and, and how the courts are dealing with that. Is there something on a policy sense the government should be prioritising now, rushing, in a sense, out to say this is what governments can do and this is what we're doing to show that we mean it? I think they need to respond to the Kate Jenkins Respect at Work report. They've had that for a year and I understand that there was a pandemic, but we managed to do other things in the pandemic at the same time. You can walk and chew gum. That needs to be absolutely a priority for them. They do need to look at what has happened to women's legal services and especially those of First Nation legal services as well, because when it comes to violence against women in Indigenous and First Nations communities, it's just extraordinary numbers, up to 35 times more than what is happening. This It's just not good enough. When you look at at the cuts that have been made to legal services, you can see the issues. When you look at some of the cuts that have been made to community groups that have been trying to advocate on these issues and to try and support on these issues, you can see how it's culminated to where we are now. All of these things, all of these tiny little paper cuts have led to the people without voices becoming even more silent, even more voiceless. So that is something that needs to be addressed. We do need to look at what is happening in the court systems and some of the states have started doing that themselves. They've set up specialty domestic violence courts and things like that. But Beyond that, it's all of these little microaggressions that women are experiencing every single day that have, we have seen being played out in this place. Men talking over women, men not listening to women when they're saying this is an issue, men using politics to explain why something has or hasn't happened. The government honestly just needs to listen. It just needs to listen and maybe, here's an idea, have some more female senior voices in the cabinet that can go, hey, 
hey, this is probably not the greatest thing that we're doing or this response probably isn't going to play out so well or maybe we need to think about it this way. When you have the same voices saying the same things, you get the same response and that's what we've seen this week. Look, the other issue, and Fran just raised it, let's get into it just a bit, is the Attorney-General Christian Porter who will delegate key parts of his job to others when he plans uh, to return from leave on March the 31st. That's a plan that the government's come up with so he can keep his position, but there isn't conflict of interest. This comes because he has announced on, actually on Monday, he announced on the same day um, as women were marching around the country that he would sue the ABC for defamation um, in relation to that news story that was written about an unnamed cabinet minister. Now, he wasn't named in that um, piece. He actually self-named. He came and, and identified himself. But he's he's pursuing this defamation action. That obviously means that that compromises his attorney general job. Now the government's revealed they're getting solicited general uh, advice on what else he might need to sort of carve out. Um, that kind of, Amy, complicates things, doesn't it, quite significantly for the Attorney General? I mean, he, just to be clear, these historic rape allegations he denies categorically. He's pursuing the defamation action. He wants to remain AG, but he can't do the full job. No, and it, it is interesting that we went from the government solicitor is advising us to the solicitor general is advising us in less than 24 hours. That that was a very big turnaround, and I think that's because the government started looking at it and going, wow, he sits in Cabinet, there's a lot that he has to do with you know, our collective decisions. We need to make sure that this is airtight. This is a problem for the government, as um, Professor Kim Rubersting was telling you yesterday, PK. This is something that you can't just go, OK, he's not going to talk about the ABC and he's not going to talk about particular things to do with the federal court because the way cabinet works, it covers everything. And it's this sort of like network of like little tentacles that go all through all through the government and all of the government's decisions. So how do you make sure that him sitting in that room and making those decisions doesn't you know, colour any of those decisions that are being made. It's. I think it's going to be a huge, huge issue for the government. And I think too, I mean, people will notice that uh, the, the number of areas of the law in the Attorney General's portfolio that Christian Porter will not be able to comment on for fear of conflict of interest. Defamation law is one, which had actually been a champion of law reform, defamation law reform. That's out, presumably. The federal courts, because it'll be heard in the federal courts, so anything to do with the federal courts. Sex discrimination law, which is firmly in his portfolio uh, and there's a lot of work to be done on that. You mentioned um, respect at work, policy work, that needs to be done. There's a whole lot of issues and that list I imagine is just going to grow. The ABC is another. He's also, remember, meant to be shepherding some kind of National Integrity Commission. Mm -hmm. I can just see that once the the Attorney-General is sitting back in question time, the Labor Party, the opposition will be making sure that they're pointing out areas of potential conflict of interest. It's going to be very difficult, I think, for the government to manage. Mm, he's the first law officer of the Commonwealth and for him to be in in this position is, is, I think, quite problematic for the government moving forward when it comes to legislation. It's also appointees to the courts. Like There are so many different issues which arise from this defamation action, which is not a 
simple black and white issue of, oh, he's just not going to talk about the ABC and defamation. It's a lot, lot wider than that. Look, we made a conscious decision to dominate this podcast with a discussion about those substantive issues. And Amy, you've helped us at the same time. I just want to note this. I know you've been listening to our shows and, and knowing that the vaccine rollout has been a bit of an issue this week. PNG and our resources we're sending to PNG to deal with their COVID crisis. All of this is going on. It's really important stuff. We're going to get to it next week. But Amy, I want to thank you for joining us and talking so powerfully about these issues. Thank you. And I hope everyone's taking care of themselves. It's been a rough few weeks. It's been a rough few weeks. Amy, thank you. Thank you. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. Yeah. Uh, well, that's the bells. We've got our first question. This one comes from Michelle this week, PK. Michelle asks us, why does Labor give pairs to LNP members who are away on sick leave? It's, it's a good question. Um, easily answered, though. It's a protocol which I think is a good one for the parliament. It's about respecting the democratic numbers, right? So the idea of pairing, so, you know, ending up basically creating the same um, numbers in the House if someone's sick is just an issue of respect. So if someone is on sick leave and even the Attorney General is on mental health leave, I think it would be a very, very unpleasant environment if somebody who was on genuine leave, like mental health leave or a physical ailment, is is not given a pair. And we've seen the, the sort of pairing arrangement being weaponised sometimes. I don't think that's a good culture. I think if someone genuinely has a reason not to be there, just like a normal worker who has entitlements, let's not get into the casual discussion, but entitlements, like if I'm <laughs> sick from the ABC one day, I you know, I get paired by a replacement, don't I, who <laughs> fills in for me. It's it, the idea of just kind of managing that um, and dealing with sick leave so that you can't game the system just because someone happens to be sick. You haven't got an extra number on the floor because of sickness. That would be silly and not represent the democratic process, which, you know, means the election ended in this many numbers for people and that's the representation. So I just reckon it's a good thing. And why doesn't the ALP, you know, game it? Well, we don't want them to. Also, because if they win, you don't want the other side doing it. You want the process respected. Well, that's right. It's the way it should go. And I think that the only reason actually it's even being questioned is because we all remember that the Abbott uh, opposition when the Gillard government was in minority um, actually did play hardball. There wasn't pairing that went on. And, you know, people were denied pairs, even though someone was going off to have a baby, weren't they, PK? Or there was something, or a child was sick. There was some, a couple of times when the pairing arrangement was refused, which really, you know, made it very tough for the Gillard government in minority during those years. And that's a fair recent memory, but that was the aberration and it should be the aberration. We've got a government that doesn't have an outright majority on the floor of the House of Reps at the moment, but it would be an absolute corruption of the democratic process, I think, if the opposition tried to uh, abuse that or um, exploit that by not pairing. So I think we're better off doing the right thing. Yeah, and it's just a respect thing too. If people are sick, for whatever reason, they're sick. Uh, You know, everyone deserves rights around sickness, I think. 
All right. Well, we love opening up a very full inbox. So keep sending your questions in, no matter how big or small. You can tweet using the hashtag The Party Room or email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. Follow The Party Room on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcasting app too. We would love it if you would follow us. Press that little star. I think it's the star in the ABC Listen app or it's a love heart if you're talking to us on Twitter or just get into it, right? Like, tell your friends. That's right. Give us a thumbs up, however you do it. That's it from us for The Party Room this week. Great to have your company. See you, Fran. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.